You're listening to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, where we promote, encourage, and equip gospel-centered worship. For more information, visit us at doxologyandtheology.com. All right, well, thank you guys uh, for um, giving me the uh, opportunity um, to stand before you. And uh, I know you're like, I didn't give you the opportunity. It wasn't my choice. But thank you for at least still uh, sitting here in the room and, uh, and being a part of of this conference, I want you to know uh, just from the get-go here that uh, I'm extremely humbled to, uh, to be in this, this fight with you guys, to be serving the church with you guys. It's such a privilege. I think so many people, um, you know, that have gone before of us have, have thought about ministry and maybe even serving the local church as being a beatdown or being a chore or being something that was a burden, but I'm just so excited that uh, I'm getting to do life and ministry in this season right now, in this culture, with, with men and women like you in this room that actually see it as a great joy and an honor to do ministry, to serve the church. Like, what greater thing could we do with our lives than to serve the, the bride of Christ? And so I want you to know that it's just a total honor um, to be uh, in, this, uh, in this role this morning. And uh, I might not know all of you guys, and you might not know me, but if you would just kind of extend a, a measure of, of trust and, and know that that I really want to be a good steward of, of your time and also the Word of God. You know, I've been given this task uh, to speak about glory to God alone. And as I've been thinking about that and really praying through, like, what the Lord would, would want us to center our thoughts on, I've just been burdened for this because if you think about it, that is the most, like, counterculture thing that we could probably be talking about as worship leaders who stand on a stage every single week to say, hey, glory is meant not for you and not for your church and not for your name, but glory is meant for God alone. I just don't know if there's a more counterculture sort of thing for us as leaders to be thinking about and processing today than this thought that all glory, not just a little bit of glory belongs to God, but, but all glory belongs to him. Uh, I've just been really, I'm telling you, like, I've been convicted by it. I heard a friend said that, like, if you can preach a sermon... Uh, but it hasn't convicted you, and you didn't have to wrestle with it before you ever got up and spoke it to anybody else, then you might not actually be preaching the word of God that, that you know and that you've experienced. And I want you to know, man, like I have been so deeply convicted about this. So this is coming from a place of deep conviction. This is coming from a wrestling in my own soul. I don't talk to you about this today as a guy who has it all figured out or says, just go do this and then peace out, good luck. But a guy who says... Man, I want this to be true of my life. I want it to be true of my church. I think that you do too. And so let's see what the word of God has to say for us today, okay? So can we just pray together? Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit just to speak to us this morning. God, this this phrase, glory to God alone, is such a massive one. I mean, it's only a few words, God, but the implications of it are so massive. And so would you teach us today? Holy Spirit of God, would you do what what words could never do, what human wisdom could never do? Holy Spirit of God, would you do what only you can do? And that is to use the word of God to change our hearts, to convict us, to challenge us, to show us the areas that were wrong, and to gently change it, God. We need you. God, I stand with these incredible men and women today 
And if we all could scream this out, we would. We absolutely need you. Without your grace, without your wisdom, without the cross of Jesus, we have no hope. So we just open the word of God in in humility today and looking to you for absolute wisdom. We trust you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So you know that I am a a pastor, right, in uh, Austin, Texas, and um, have a bunch of kids and just uh, I love love the church. I love my family. It's a really fun season of life that we're in right now. Um, But even as I'm thinking about how how fun life is and how much I enjoy my church, this glory to God alone thing is not something that I can like get over or move past very easily. Like on paper, glory to God alone makes so much sense. Like on paper, it makes perfect sense, of course. But in the reality of our lives, like the day-to-day life, glorying in God alone seems like an impossibility at times, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Glory all glory to God and just him alone. There's so many truths, like when I read the scripture, I can read it and I can wrap my mind around it. Like when the scripture says, be self-controlled, I'm like, okay, I understand what that means and I understand that I need to do that. I understand pretty much like how to be self-controlled, put some accountability in my life and and seek self-control in my life. Love one another earnestly. I get that. I understand that we should be people, men and women who love earnestly. Show hospitality. I understand that. Sing and make melody in my heart to the Lord. I understand that. And yet there's this mysterious sense of wrestling when it comes to dealing with these two truths. Truth number one, God is infinitely glorious and he deserves all glory. And truth number two, On our most sinful day, we want to keep all the glory for ourselves, while on our most godly day, we can still figure out a way to get a twinge of glory for ourselves, right? These two truths, God is perfect and he's glorious and he deserves all the glory. Truth number two, I am a glory thief. I'm a thief. And still the scripture tells us that we were created for the glory of God alone. It's our chief end. So to get us started, if you would, like if you got uh, paper and leather, open that up. If you've got like a screen, um, turn that on um, and uh, turn to uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 real quick. There's a ton of passages uh, throughout the Bible that talk about this, this issue of glory to God alone. This is just one of them. And if you would, we're just going to um, look at this really quick to kind of give us a starting point. This is 1 Peter chapter 4 starting in verse 7. Here's what the word of God says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, understand it, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another. I get that. Earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality. I get that. To one another without grumbling. That's a little bit harder. And then here's where it gets crazy in verse 18, as each, hear this, worship leader, hear this, pastor, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything, in everything, God may be glorified 
through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Did you hear that? In order that in everything God may be glorified. Again, on paper it makes total sense. You and I have been given a gift, a talent. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. But in reality, how does that actually work? Like how in the world does a gifted businessman running a global company, right, and winning the applause of millions, how does he or she ever give glory to God and God alone? Like how in the world is my friend who's a professional athlete, right, who gets paid to like catch footballs and win trophies and has fortune, how does he actually give glory to God and God alone? How in the world does a songwriter who wins Grammys and fills up stadiums, how does he or she give glory to God alone? How could it be possible, right, in in the scope of like God's creation, how could it be possible that a worship leader gifted by God and filled with talent and ability, how could it be possible to strap on a wooden guitar, plug it into a sound system, stand behind an SM58 with lights, laser focus, on him or her standing on a stage that's well decorated with rows of chairs of eyeballs looking at them with applause between every song and a slide after each song that says the name of the person that wrote it. How does that person, how does a worship leader say, God, I want to glory in you and only you. I'm going to give glory to God and God alone. Like, How, I'm saying for real, how in the world, how messed up is this bizarre job that God has given us that he would put us here, he'd entrust you with it, he'd call you to it, and then he'd say, but glory to me and me alone. The most counterintuitive idea that scripture could present to you and me, people that have these bizarre jobs, is this, worship leader, in everything you do, Glorify God and God alone. Like think of how often you and I try to glory rob God. How often we try to maneuver and strategize, right? Big buzzword in church and church stuff. Strategize. Increase our followership. Seek the approval and the applause of our sheep. Think of how often you and I reach for tweets and thumbs up. How often we want to be known and credited for what we do. Like, side note real quick, if, if there's one indication that you might be a glory robber today, it's when if you don't get the thumbs up or you don't get the credit or the applause, that it buckles you and makes you want to quit. Like, if that's you, it might be a good indication that, that you're a glory robber. I am incredibly guilty of this. Like, hear me, I'm so guilty of this, and I need more than anything to be reminded of my chief end to glorify God alone. I mean, even as like, you know, last night was was Al and then Scotty, incredible sermon, and I'm sitting on the front row and I leave over to Charlie and I'm like, I think somebody made a mistake by asking me to speak. They don't know I'm not that smart, right? There's this thing in me of like, well, man, I, I want to I wanna be smart. I, I, I mean, I hope that I'm good. I hope it's awesome. Like, I hope the morning session's awesome, you know? Even as I see words on the screen and I see who wrote each song after, there's this twinge of like, man, I I wonder, I hope songs that I I write, like, 
I hope somebody knows that I wrote some songs. You know what I'm saying? It's so jacked up. It is so, so messed up. I'm incredibly guilty. And don't sit there and judge me because you are too. All right? You are too. So how do we do it? How do we do it? The great thing about God and scriptures, he didn't say go do something without giving us the ability and infusing his Holy Spirit's power and then equipping us with the word of God to show us how to do it. So um, rest assured, this is not a hopeless sermon here, okay? First, understand this. First, understand this today, guys. Our temptation to give glory to other things or other people or ourselves, it is not a new temptation, like you don't have a temptation, I don't have a temptation that suddenly in the scope of eternity is a new one to be interjected into humanity. It's a plague of humanity. It's been true since the beginning that we are prone to be glory thieves. There's a, a, a great story in, in the book of Exodus that I think would be a great place for us to kind of sit in for a few minutes this morning before, uh, before I, I wrap this up and give us some application. In Exodus 33, right? Exodus 33 is, is this incredible story that you're probably familiar with. And, I mean, backing up just a little bit, like Exodus is one of the most fascinating books to me in, in the Bible. I, I love the book of Exodus in so many ways. Like I see how good God is and I see his faithfulness and his patience. Oh my gosh, his patience. But then I also see... Uh, these Israelites that are so fascinating to me. I think about how they experienced so much in their life post-slavery. They experienced so much, the incredible things. They saw crazy plagues. They saw the splitting of a sea. They saw water flowing from a rock. Hello, a stick turning into a snake. Fire, clouds, manna, quail. They saw incredible things. But somewhere near the end of the book of Exodus, you find these same people, the ones who experienced all the wonders of God, the miracles of God, but somehow it's not enough for them. So they're worshiping a golden cow. If you think about it on paper, that's so ironic that they've experienced these incredible miracles of God. And at the end of the story of Exodus, we see them sitting around worshiping a golden cow. You ever thought about why it was a cow? Like, why not a golden quail or a golden chunk of manna? You ever thought about why it was a cow? Do you remember what they worshiped when they were in slavery with Pharaoh? They, they worshiped cows. Like that was the custom, was to worship cows. They literally experienced all these amazing things with God, and then they were so nostalgic of the old that in so many ways seemed more comfortable that at the end of this story in Exodus, they're, they're building a cow, remembering what had happened before and forgetting what God had done in the middle of it. Here's where I start to think Okay, I have a lot of similarities with the Israelites, but this is where I draw the line, okay? Like, I would never worship a golden cow. Like, I start to think, Israelites, you're so dumb. You're so silly. Like, you're so fickle. You forgot the plagues. You forgot the Red Sea. If I were there, right, if I were able to put my boots in dry dirt with pillars of water on my left and my right and then see, look back and see God close the sea and crush all my enemies. Like if I could see that, how in the world would I ever worship anybody else or anything else but the living God who just saved my life? Right, that's what I start to think. Like how could I want more than that? 
It'd be easy for me to glory in God if I saw him. It'd be easy to see how good he was, how much he deserved it, how, how frivolous it would be for me to want more. I mean, he did so much, enough really. How could I ever want more? How could I ever worship or glorify anybody else, especially a cow made out of melted rings? But we do, don't we? We do. Like, like we forget how good God is. And in our thirsty, hungry, insatiable thirst for more, like we forget how good God is. I'm, I've struggled with like even telling you this story because there's two responses. The older brothers in the room are going to judge me like crazy. Okay, The younger brothers in the room are going to be tempted to say, Oh man, I'm not so bad anyway. That guy's messed up, right? But I'm going to go ahead and tell you, right? So about a year ago, I was going through a season of just like burnout, honestly. Like just doubt. Like you ever have those moments where you wake up and you're like, is my, like am I doing anything that really counts for the kingdom of God? Like am I just a mediocre worship leader writing mediocre songs with not much to say? Like does it really count for anything in the world? Anybody else ever felt like that in their entire life? Bravery. You guys are the brave younger brothers in the room, right? Older brothers are like, no, nah, man, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. So I was having this season, right, where I just felt like, man, God, I, I, I wish you would I wish you'd use me like, you know, use like other people. I wish that you would, I wish you'd just do cooler stuff, you know. And my, my wife, who is like one of the godliest people that I know, just, you know, in, in a loving way said, um, you're one of the most selfish people I've ever met in my life right now. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. That's, that's very helpful. Thank you. So we, we took, a, I took about a week off just to kind of like get, get all of my junk together in my head and right, really like spend time at the feet of Jesus with him, asking him to recenter me, you know. And so we went on a little like little getaway thingy. And we were out having dinner one night, and it was awesome. And me and Jane were just able to, like, it was confession. It was repentance. I was able to say, like, I'm really struggling with this, and I know it's wrong. I just feel like I should be doing more. You know, I want, I want more from God. And she's just shaking her head like, you are an idiot. You know, so we get done with dinner, and uh, we go back to the hotel. And the room that we were in, we open it up, and the TV was on. And it was tuned to some Christian channel, like Daystar or something like that, right? And I don't know how it got on Daystar. We, I don't think we were watching Daystar before we went and ate dinner, but Daystar was on. And, and the, the music was just filling the room. It was like loud, right? And there was no lights on. It was just this big screen on the wall playing Daystar. And it was this massive concert. It was like an a, a, a arena full of people, and they were singing this song. And Jamie looks at me and she says, you, do you hear that? Like, do you, do you hear what they're, they're singing? And so I walked in, and it was a group of people I didn't recognize in a city I probably had never heard of, just this room full of people singing. And she said, that's a, that's a song that you wrote. And in that moment, there was not one single bit of pride that filled my heart. There was not one bit of being puffed up or thinking, yeah, you're dang right, that's awesome. Not one single 
bit, I literally fell to the side of the bed and I felt so much sorrow for wanting more. And I felt the Holy Spirit of God in that moment press on my heart in such a real way as if to say, Aaron, am I not enough? Aaron, is, is this not enough too? Is it not enough to walk into a room and, and hear somebody singing a song that, that I gave anyway? It's not really yours. Is that not enough? So, so Aaron, what would be enough? Like, is it not just enough to simply be my son? I got so convicted by that because in that honest moment, I realized that who cares? Like, if you had the most amount of money and the most amount of fame and success and you had the most of whatever it is that your heart longs for, it still wouldn't be enough. It never could be. If you're daring enough, if you're honest enough, you can easily see golden cows littering the landscape of your life. I can. And they're all vowing for your attention. They are begging to be glorified. So as much as we want to roll our eyes at the silly Israelites and wonder, how could you give glory to a cow and forget what God has done for you? The story of Exodus is my story. The story of Exodus is your story. Many of us in this room, you could, you could pinpoint in your lives, um, times where God has split an ocean for you and you walked through it and you saw his faithfulness, right? You can pinpoint those times of his faithfulness and still say, God, I'm looking directly at a golden cow today and I wished I had more. I'm not fully satisfied because I stopped looking at you. Maybe you're staring at a bunch of awesome things in your life right now and you're still saying, I wish that there was more. The great paradox of the Christian life is this. You can experience the most overwhelmingly beautiful moment of God in one moment, then immediately worship someone else or yourself in the next. It's the great paradox of the Christian life. You can experience the most overwhelmingly beautiful moment of God in one moment, then immediately worship someone else or yourself in the very next. So anybody who's walked with God for very long can look at the Israelites and say, that's me. It's totally me. Look at Exodus 33. Okay, Exodus 33. Exodus 33, this is right after the uh, story of the golden calf. God gets really angry. He sends down a plague. Don't know what that looked like, but I imagine it being pretty terrible. And then the Lord starts speaking and it reminds me, what he's about to say reminds me a little bit of, uh, of the game Would You Rather. You guys ever played the game Would You Rather? Okay, my kids love this game, right? It's, it's two very, very different extreme things, and you gotta, you got to pick which one you would choose. And it's always the worst of two options ever to imagine. My kids love it, right? Here's, a, here's one that, um, that they uh, asked me the other day. Dad, would you rather be an ugly genius or a hot moron? I was like, I don't know, that's, a good, that's really good. But you can't not choose one. You have to literally choose one, right? Here's another one. If you could only have one song in your head for the rest of your life, like one song that plays over and over and over again, every minute, every second of the day and night, if you only had one play in your head for the rest of your life, would you rather have Bohemian Rhapsody or James Blunt's You're Beautiful? That's hard, Joel, that's hard. That's really hard. 
Would you rather be the famous author of Twilight or the famous writer of every Nickelback song ever written? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Jimmy, what you pick, man? Twilight. I got it. Twilight. So here's what's interesting as we look at this, this scripture. When we look at the, the text this morning, we see God doing a similar thing. God's not afraid to play the biggest would-you-rather game in the history of the universe with his people. Why? Because when we're faced with the question of would-you-rather, it indicates the true heart. The mere extremity of the question forces us to examine the very heart behind our answer. So here it is, Exodus 33, starting in verse 1. God poses this question to his people. The Lord says to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. Did you ever think about how that sounds like parasites? That's funny. The Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, because you are a stiff-necked people. So let me just paraphrase just a little bit here, okay? They worshiped a cow. God sent a plague on the people because he was angry. And here in these verses, God is essentially saying, look, my holiness and your sinfulness cannot coexist. They don't work together. So, so here's an option for you. I'll give you success, tons of it. I'll beat up all your enemies, and I'll give you a land flowing with milk and honey, wealth, health, prosperity, literally everything you're wanting, but I will not go with you. Literally in the Hebrew, he's saying, my face will not go with you. I won't dwell in your midst. So cow worshipers, would you rather have me or have everything you've ever wanted and not have me? Like, gosh, what if he asked you this question? I'll, I'll give you everything. I'll give you talent, audience, happy marriage, great kids, platform, book deals, record deals, success in all you do, power, money, influence, followers, listeners. I'll let you lead the next big movement, the next big thing. But you can't have me. How would you respond? Like, remember, this wasn't hypothetical. Like, God literally was saying, go, but, but I'm not going to go with you. John Piper said this in God is the Gospel, which I think is absolutely critical for us. He says, the question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Like, could you get everything you wanted and be satisfied if Christ was not there? Check out what the Israelites do with this deal God has to offer them. Verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. 
Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Probably the very last thing I would think if God offered me this same thing is, what a disastrous word. Like, I don't know that that would be the first thing that would come to my mind. What a disastrous word. God says, I'll make you rich. I'll make you awesome. I'll make you famous. I'll make you the best of this. I'll make you effective. Uh, You have success in, in every single way, but you can't have me. Honestly, some of our responses might be, I mean, but I could use those riches for you, Jesus. And I mean, I could use my fame for for you, Jesus. Like, I could use my effectiveness for you, Jesus. I could use my songwriting skills or my ability. Like, I could use it for you, Jesus. Can't we kind of like barter in this a little bit? But verse 4 tells us this crazy, surprising thing that the Israelites say. It says, when the people heard it, they thought it was a disastrous word, so they mourned and they took off their ornaments. They yelled, guys, disaster. Like this is disastrous. No way, danger. The Israelites, right, they, they got it right. Like they heard it and saw it as a disastrous word and they said, no, that, that, that's, that's not it. If you really think about it, it makes sense why they would say no to it because they really did experience God. Like they tasted his presence. They camped out underneath the stars and saw a a pillar of fire hang over them. They swirled the manna and quail around their mouths and patted their stomachs and said, wow, God, God, he really is good. He filled my belly. And for anyone who's tasted and seen that God is good, the absence of his presence is never a choice. It's never an option when you've truly tasted and seen that God's good. So they mourn, they take off their ornaments, at the mere thought of having everything but not having God. Can we just camp out on this for a little bit? Taking off their ornaments. Ever thought about like what that meant? And these ornaments were, were things that they wore when they celebrated something, when they were worshiping with, with cheer and, and in a festivity, right? They were usually nicer robes or, or rings or jewelry. But at the thought of this, they took them off. The adornments, right? that they were wearing when they're singing and dancing around a golden cow, they humbled themselves and they stripped them off. It was this strong expression of sorrow at the mere idea of not having God. So when you take off any adornments that you have, what you're saying is, God, I'd like to lay this shiny, sparkly thing down because having you at the center is way better than having this. Like if we're struggling in giving glory to God and God alone, you know what the best thing that we could do for a season is to to take off the ornament and set it down and let somebody else lead for a little bit and just simply be on the front row worshiping. One of the best things we could do is stop blogging for a little bit, to take off the ornament, lay it down and say, God, you're you're better than this, this little small teeny tiny platform that I think is so cool. To shut down your Instagram, to shut down your social media, to shut it down, to set aside your stage person and your stage leadership for a season, to say, God, I'm taking off adornments because I'm really close to wanting other things more than I want you. And I mourn at the thought of having everything but not having you, God. So Moses responds in verse 15. Hear this, he said to them, 
If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. There's this holy discontent in Moses. He says, you don't go, we don't go. The cry of the Christian worship leader should always be, God, if your presence doesn't go with me, nothing else matters and I'm not going to go. That's what the cry of the Christian worship leader should be. You don't go, I don't go. So we got this picture, right? Everything plus no God equals not enough. Everything plus no God equals not enough. But hang with me just for the next couple of minutes here. Here's where it gets crazy. What if God were to offer everything plus God? What if he said you can have all that, every desire, everything that you've been wanting and craving, plus you can have me? I mean, that's essentially what God says to Moses next in verse 17. Look what he says. The Lord said to Moses, the very thing that you've spoken, I will do for you. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So God says, okay, this very thing you ask, I will do. I'll go with you to the land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to go with you, and we're going to crush the enemies. Um, You're going to have success and victory and all of it. That should be the end of the story, the conversation that Moses is having with God. But it's not. It's not the end of the story. Moses has a holy discontent still, so he daringly asks for something different. Look at it. Verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. So track with me here, okay? God says, you can have all my stuff, but not me. Moses has a holy discontent with that. He realizes that everything plus no God is not enough. Then God says, you can have all of my stuff, and me, and Moses has a holy discontent and says, please show me your glory. Everything plus God is still not enough. Why would Moses say this? I think Moses knew what you and I instinctively know, like if we're honest. If the desire of our heart is God plus something, whatever that something is can easily become the object of our greatest desire. If it's God plus something, that something always is vying for the attention of our heart. In all reality, worship pastor, hear this. Our hearts have such a tendency to become enamored with the gifts of God that we completely forget the giver of those gifts. This is why most of us struggle in our understanding of how in the world we, the ones that typically live in the spotlight, could ever give glory to God and God alone. One of the worst things that could happen to us is that we get everything plus God. And we find it's still not enough. And it's impossible to give glory to God and God alone because all the everything else's get smack dab in the way of our chief end. And that is to glorify God and God alone with our whole entire being See, God has never been interested in being one of your idols. This is why Jesus says you can't love God and love money. You can't cling to your mother and father and follow me. You can't have one foot in the world and have one foot in the kingdom. You can't serve two masters. Moses knew that he and his people, what they truly needed was not everything plus no God. 
And not everything plus God, but just this. Please show me your glory. Our only obsession should be that our glorious God would show us his glory. And that his glory would shine brightly. Because when it does, we see how utterly foolish it is to desire anything or anybody else. Please show me your glory. I'm just going to wrap it up with, with, with this. We, we talk about glory a lot, and I, I loved when Bleeker was leading worship, how we put the definition of, of glory on there. I love that. It keeps our minds engaged in what's going on. When glory was mentioned here in the Hebrew, it carries this, this uh, idea of weight or heaviness, right? That's what the actual word in the Hebrew text, that's what it, what it carries um, with it. So God... Um, Moses is saying to God, God, please show me your weight. To see the glory of God is to experience the weight of who he is. Question, when you experience the weight of who God is, like when he presses down on you, when he weighs down on you, do you know what really happens? It's like this. If you could pile enough rocks and bricks on your back, if you could strap them to you somehow and keep piling them on you over and over and over and over and over again, what would eventually happen? Your, your knees would begin to buckle. Your legs would quiver and give way. You would be under the strain and under the weight of those rocks. If you kept piling enough of them on you, it would eventually take you completely prostrate to the ground. And if you kept piling more and more and more, it would eventually end your life. It would take your life. It would crush you. So when the weight of who God truly is bears down on you and presses into you, you have to bow. Your legs quiver and your knees buckle and you fall completely surrendered. You die. He lives. Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When you experience the weight of who he is, all that matters is what he intends to do with you and through you, not what you want to do with him and through him. When you experience the weight of who he is, your guitar and your keyboard and vocal cords and trophies and Twitter followers and approval ratings seem so completely insignificant. When you experience the weight of who he is, it will absolutely crush your desires for other things. And you quickly realize he's the one, he's the only one that truly deserves worship. The response becomes glory to God and God alone. You guys know how this, this part of the, the story ends. God says, okay, Moses, I'll show you my glory, but you can't see my face. Because nobody can see my face and live. So God tells Moses to hide in the cleft of a rock. And he says this, stand on the rock and my glory is going to pass you by and you will see my back, but not my face. I try to put myself in that scene. Can you imagine what it would be like to stand on a rock and peer through the cracks of the cleft to have the glory of God pass you by and you see it outshines the blazing sun that's overhead. It's more beautiful and radiant than anything you've ever seen before. You experience the weight of it. And even as great as that moment was, Moses only got to see the back of God's glory. He didn't see his face. 
And here is the most unbelievable news that I could tell you today. And I'm going to end with this. You and I are not pressed between some dusty rocks in a desert, hoping that God will pass us by so that we can see the backside of his glory. But you and I get to behold the fullness of his glory. My friends, my fellow worship leaders, there's a cleft of a rock that you have to stand on if you ever want to experience the weight of God. There is a precious rock, so precious that when you stand on it, it becomes your most prized all in all and everything in the, else in the world seems to melt away. This rock is called the rock of ages, cleft for me. This rock's name is Jesus, Emmanuel. And he came and he dwelt among us. He did not merely pass us by, but as John 1 tells us, we beheld his glory. Don't miss this. When you stand in the cleft of this rock, Jesus, you get to see the face of the glory of God. My friend Halim, who's a pastor at our church, put it this way. Moses saw the back of God's glory. But in the cross of Jesus, we see the face of God's glory. This is how we give glory to God and God alone. The only way is to truly stand on the rock of ages, be hidden in the cleft for me, to look at Jesus over and over and over, to have the weight of Jesus pressed upon us so we become humble, submitted, postured to our knees with melted desires, a worship leader who's willing to take off any adornment and say glory to God alone. Everything plus no God, not enough. Everything plus God, not enough. Glory in God plus nothing else equals more than enough. More than enough. So the next time you feel the temptation to seek fame or approval or see how many people are mentioning you, let your prayer be, take me to the cross, show me your glory. The next time your church isn't going the way you planned, it's not going the way you wanted and you wish so desperately that God had a different plan for you and your life, let your prayer be, take me to the cross, please show me your glory. Worship leaders, um, may there be such a holy discontent in us that only God's glory could satisfy because only when we hide ourselves in the rock of ages and see the face of God's glory in Jesus can we ever be leaders who give all glory to God and God alone. Amen. Let me pray that this would be true of us, okay? God, when I say that it's counterintuitive for me and for us, like, I really mean that. It is polar opposite of what our hearts are prone towards. So God, we realize that the scripture is crystal clear that That it's you. It's always been you. It's you that does the work. It's you that saves souls. It's you that ignites people's hearts to be in love with you. It's, it's never been us that, that does that. We confess that to you. Forgive us for having small visions and small dreams that are centered around us. But give us heavenly and 
upward sort of vision, God, that wants you to be glorified and you alone. Use us if you want to. And if you do, we want to be people who hide behind you, hide in you, and just keep pointing to you and shining the spotlight on you. Teach us how to do that in a culture that seems so hard. Teach us how to do that, God, when we have a cell phone in our hand that constantly wants to tell us how many people follow and like us. Teach us how to do that when we stand on a stage that's lit up. Teach us how to do that. Remind us to look at the cross, to see your glory. Jesus, we love you. We're grateful. It's in your name we pray. Amen.